Now, as I said before, here we see the Lord Jesus Christ preaching. I have to say that I love this idea. I love this thought of considering the Lord Jesus Christ preaching, the Lord Jesus Christ sending forth the glad tidings of the gospel. And that's exactly what we have here. Excuse me. That's exactly what we have in this passage of Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ himself proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And what I want to do is I want to enter this passage of Scripture and I want to open up this sermon, hopefully conveying to you something of the sense of both urgency and expectancy that we see in the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which our Lord Jesus Christ understands the time in which he lives. Of course he did. He was the Lord. He is the Lord of time. But there's a sense in which as he comes into Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he does so with the awareness that the time is fulfilled. Very significant. Rick read to us from Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time. We see other passages in scripture that give this great emphasis to the pivotal aspect of the timing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, something real, something new happens. And it's with this idea of time breaking in that the Lord Jesus Christ preaches with this urgency. He preaches with this expectancy. And so I hope and I pray that today as we hear the word of God, we will do it with the same kind of urgency and expectancy, understanding that there is a present now to the coming of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God in one sense has always ruled and reigned. God is a great king over all the earth. There is another sense when the kingdom of God particularly began to break in at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is being extended in in, in the day in which we live. And there is another sense in which the kingdom of God will come in its its fulfillment at the return of Jesus Christ. But there's always this urgency. There's always this nowness to the kingdom of God. And that's what I hope to emphasize uh, to you here today. What I want to really set before you is the following idea, or the proposition, which is essentially this. The entrance into the kingdom of God has been opened with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it is time to repent and believe in order to gain entrance into the kingdom. Repent and believe in order to gain entrance into the kingdom. Well, I want to begin just with a general kind of uh, general approach to this subject. And first of all, I want to ask you the question, Have you considered these words of the Lord Jesus Christ to repent and believe the gospel? Have you considered what it is to repent by way of understanding who God is and the demand that God makes upon your soul? That demand for righteousness that God calls you to. That demand for holiness that God calls you to. That demand to be everything that God calls you to be is placed upon your soul. And I hope and I, and I, hope and I pray that you've come to that point to where you've understood that in and of yourself you'll never be able to f- perform that. And because of that, there is a sense in which you begin to, like Job, abhor yourself, to despise yourself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. I hope you've come to that place. I hope, you've not, I hope you've not been left into what we might say the arena of repentance. I hope you've been moved by the Spirit of God to embrace the promises of Jesus Christ. I hope you've been moved to see in Jesus Christ this one who is altogether lovely. This one who died for your sins. This one who now calls you into his kingdom. You see, this is what it is to repent and believe the gospel. What I also want to do by way of a general introduction is just to, to speak a little bit about the kingdom of God itself. What is this thing that we call the kingdom of God? Well, one of the things you need to understand is that the kingdom of God is a very comprehensive idea in all of Scripture. In one sense, it pervades the entirety of the word of God. 
There's a sense in which when we see God creating, He is creating as the sovereign Lord, of course. There's another sense in which when we look through the Old Testament, we see great declarations about God being a king. But what's really interesting is this, is that the phrase, the kingdom of God, is never found in the Old Testament. In one sense, it is a particular, is it a, it is a particular emphasis of the New Testament. And the reason why it's given particular emphasis in the, in the New Testament is because with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a real breaking into, a real invasion of the sovereign rule of God in the lives of individuals. Now, there's an idea in which the, the kingdom of God is, is here presently. But there's another idea in which the the kingdom of God is yet to come in its fullness. And what we're going to do today is we're going to use this idea of the kingdom of God as something of a controlling thing. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this passage of Scripture in in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, is that the ideas that are contained in these verses are very familiar ideas. Stop and think. Look at the verse once again. Look at the two verses once again. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Well, the idea of preaching is very familiar to us, isn't it? Uh, we know what preaching is. It's it's that idea of proclamation. But as I said earlier, it's 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 not just preaching by way of uh, a mere man. It's Jesus Himself preaching. But the idea is common enough. The concept of the kingdom of God, uh, the concept of the kingdom of God, I'm sure is not necessarily new to you. I hope to give you some insight today into the nature of the kingdom. I hope to make clear to you today how you are to enter into the kingdom. Uh, but again, the concept of the kingdom of God is not necessarily new to you. I'd be very surprised if not if uh, if any of you have not heard of the idea of the kingdom of God. The other things that we see here are common as well, common in the sense that they're well known. The idea of repentance. We, we understand this. This is, this is part of the language of the Christian church. It ought to be anyway. And of course, the idea of belief or faith. Repent and believe the gospel. So th- these terms are all very familiar. But what I want to do today, although each of these themes can be picked up, can be used and developed, I think really what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture is a certain emphasis on the kingdom of God as breaking into human history in a way that's unique to that moment. It's not so much the kingdom of God as God's sovereign rule overall. It's now the breaking in, the entering into. And we see this in a number of ways. We see this by way of the mention of John passing from the scene. We see this by way of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking about the fulfillment of time. We see this by way of the Lord Jesus Christ pressing upon his hearers and us the necessity to repent and believe in order that we might enter into the kingdom. So as I said before, What I hope to do today is to use the concept of the kingdom of God as something of a controlling thing. And so what we'll do in our first point is we'll take a look at John as he prepared for this moment of the inbreaking into the kingdom of God. John prepares us for that moment. Secondly, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ preaching the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And then thirdly, what we're going to see is the requirements as to how to enter the kingdom of God. So those will be the three uh, points that we will follow uh, today. Again, the gospel, uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God prepared for by John, the gospel of the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God entered into through repentance and faith. Well, once again, let's take a look at this idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, I want to, uh, as I said before, the kingdom of God is such a, such a broad and comprehensive idea that in one sense, you almost, have to be in, you almost have to have an encyclopedic mind to be able to keep within your thinking everything that pertains to the kingdom of God. 
It is an absolutely vast idea in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, some scholars say that the, the idea of the kingdom of God may indeed be the controlling theme of all of Scripture. I don't know that I would necessarily go there. I'm not going to take issue with that. But I just want you to be aware that there are, there are men who are good and qualified who take this concept of the kingdom of God and say that if we look at it thoroughly, we can find every subcategory of biblical truth lined up under the broader category of the kingdom of God. That may indeed be true. Uh, it's, uh, this, the same scholar goes on to make mention of the fact that in 86% of the books of the Bible, the kingdom of God is mentioned explicitly. We find it again, I believe it's uh, at least 68 times, almost 70 times uh, mentioned in the, in the New Testament. And actually much more than that when we think of it, when we think not only of the, the exact phrase, the kingdom of God, but when we think of associated phrases with it, where the, where the idea might be presented just with the, the, the word, the kingdom. And so again, the kingdom of God is a vast and it's a very broad idea. How should we understand it? I think the best way we can understand it is this. That the kingdom of God is essentially God's sovereign rule, and especially his sovereign rule in the hearts and in the lives of those who have looked to him in faith. And especially those who have looked to him in faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And so the, and so the kingdom of God in one sense is that, is that reality in which you and I live in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ where Christ's word reigns supreme in our heart, where the desire of our soul is to do that which pleases our king. In one sense, in a very generic sense, this is what the kingdom of God is. Now, as I said before, there are aspects of the kingdom of God that are both present and future. One of the things that we're going to see here today is I, as we kind of open up the, the idea of the kingdom of God, we're going to use only the gospel of Mark. Now, Mark makes uh, in the gospel of Mark, we find that the kingdom of God is mentioned 15 times and so trying to narrow my field a little bit, I figured that I would just stay with the Gospel of Mark since we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark in order to get some helpful information concerning uh, what the kingdom of God is all about. And one of the things that we see about the kingdom of God, as I said before, it is a present reality, yet it's a future hope as well. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God has yet to break into in all of its fullness. But you and I, again, are not just waiting for the breaking in. You and I are living as citizens of the kingdom of, of God in this fallen world in which we live. And so these are some of the things that we see uh, by way of what, the, uh, of what the kingdom of God is. Again, the sovereign rule of God, the saving rule of God within the hearts of his people. Well, we'll come back to this concept of the kingdom of God as, in, at the proper time. But having introduced the idea of the kingdom of God in a, in a very general way, what I want to do now is get back to our text, and I want you to see how that the kingdom of God in its proclamation and its inbreaking was prepared for by John the Baptist. Look here at verse 14. I think it's very interesting that Mark specifically makes a note here. He says this, Now after that, John was put in prison. Kind of interesting here, isn't it? There is a sense in which, in, way, in, in, in the way in which Mark is writing, he wants us to make sure that at this specific time, John has now been removed from public ministry. At this particular time, John's work, we might say, as the forerunner is now coming to a conclusion. And at this particular time, we might say that this is Mark's way of saying it is now 11.59 p.m. And 12 o'clock for the new day is right now. 
And when our Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene, that's exactly what he says. Now is the time fulfilled. But this idea of John preaching, this idea of John preparing, I think it's very, very significant. <clears throat> Again, we've seen this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. We, we gave reference and, and made some, some mention about John's uh, ministry of preparation. Uh, we've seen John in, uh, uh, um, in Mark chapter 1, verse 3, again, referred to as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This, again, was a, was a kind of a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. And so, again, this idea of John preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that I find interesting about John's ministry of preparation, I find this encouraging, is that in John's ministry of preparation, there was a great response. I find that encouraging because what it tells us is this, that there was a people in John's day who in spite of all the literally hundreds and thousands of years of prophecies that had come and gone, not come and gone, but of prophecies that had gone before, and the people of Israel living in something of a, of a dejected state. There they were at this present time under the, the bondage of Rome. In their past history, they had been in bondage to other nations. In their time, they had men who had failed them by way of their, king, by way of their, uh, by way of their uh, rule by, as far as their being kings. They were doing much that had gone on that in a very real way could have dissuaded many from believing anything of the promises of God. But there was a people who were holding on to the promises. And there was a people who were coming to John in order to be baptized. In other words, what I want you to see is this. Is that in spite of all the difficulty that this people went through, there was still in John's day and in Jesus' day, a people who were holding on to the promises of God to be fulfilled. We see this in the lives of a number of people. We see this in blessed Simeon, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the hope of Israel, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. I have to say, Simeon's probably one of my favorite Christmas characters, if I could put it that way. Here was a man, a wonderful man, wasn't he? He was just and devout. He was, he was living by, by faith in the promises of God, the, the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. What a wonderful designation for, for the people of God in any uh, period in time. And so here was Simeon again, this man uh, who was waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. In the, in the, in the latter part of, uh, of the Gospel of Mark, we'll read about Joseph of Arimathea. And notice how Mark describes Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God. What, what am I trying to say? In spite of whatever Israel had been through in their history, there were promises that were made that certain people were not giving up on. This is significant. Because, my friends, I want you to know that there are promises that are made to the church of Jesus Christ. That even though the church of Jesus Christ go through dark ages, yet those promises will be fulfilled. And I want you to see and I want you to understand that those who waited, those who were holding on, they were, again, they, they would be blessed with seeing the word of God being fulfilled in their day. What a wonderful thing this is. Now, again, why do I bring this to your attention? Because as I just said, in many ways, we live in parallel times. We look around and there are many reasons, again, maybe to be depressed. 
There are reasons why we think, oh, this could never go on. There are reasons why we look around and we see the church of Jesus Christ sometimes in such a low state. But I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, do not be dissuaded from the promises of God. The scriptures, again, encourage us not to be dissuaded. The Lord Jesus Christ, when in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, he says this. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. You see, there was Israel, as I said before, Great promises were made and they were reduced to, to a state of, uh, of, of, in one sense, of subjection to Rome. Promises that were made concerning this great line of, of David coming from the tribe of Judah. And what was the tribe of Judah in that day? It was reduced again to poor Joseph and little Mary. But these promises would come true. And so just as there were people who were holding on to the promises of the breaking in of the kingdom of God in that day, you and I must hold on to those promises as well. And Jesus challenges us with this, does he not? Will he find faith on the earth when he comes? He says this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You see again, and we hear the words of the Apostle Paul, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. What am I saying? Listen, my brothers and sisters, I don't care what it looks like around us. There are, pres- there are promises of God that have been made to the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ shall rule and reign. I don't care what it appears to be on the human level. You be like the faithful who went to John. You be like the ones that the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to be. Where will there be faith on the earth when he returns? By the grace of God, let us answer, yes, there will be. And by the grace of God, let it be found in us. We're reminded of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, in the, in the midst of trying times. You have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the patience. Oh, my brothers and sisters, what am I saying to you? You see, when John prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a people who responded. Preach the gospel. There will be people who respond. And should you and I, again, remain faithful in a a time of challenge, understand, you and I, we will see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God breaking in as well. I think of the the wonderful words uh, that we see in Revelation chapter 21. When all things are being consummated, when the kingdom of Jesus Christ is breaking in in all of its fullness and all of its glory. And we read this in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now listen. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Right. For the words are true and faithful. You see, there were people in John's day who said that the words that God had given in the Old Testament through the prophets were true and faithful. And brothers and sisters, as we wait for the inbreaking of the fullness of God, of, of the kingdom of God, and all of its fullness, let us be like those who hold on. Let us be like those who live by faith in the promises of God. Let us be like those who understand that not only was there a preparation for the kingdom of God through the preaching of John the Baptist, there was an actual inbreaking of the kingdom of God through the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the next point, that the kingdom of God was not only prepared for through the preaching of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God was actually proclaimed by Jesus Christ himself. 
He was the great preacher of the kingdom of God. Notice how we see it here again in verse 14. Uh, After John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Literally preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. You see, the rule of God in your life is good news. The fact that God rules over all is something that makes the soul happy. The idea that God now takes residence within the life of the individual and he reigns supreme is something that you and I ought to say to the world at large. It's, this is good news. God is not cramping my style. God is making God is enabling, enabling, enabling me to be all that he desires me to be. And so again, you see, there is this great good news concerning the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, you have to understand that, as I said before, Jesus was the preacher of the kingdom of God. And and, 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 in one sense, this was the the very hallmark of his ministry. Notice what we have here uh, by way of this emphasis on the kingdom of God in the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. It's going to be very interesting. As we work through this first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ doing exactly that. Preaching the Gospel, healing all manner of sickness, all manner of disease, exercising authority over over the demonic realm. The Lord Jesus Christ breaks, the kingdom breaks in with authority and with power. Matthew goes on and he gives another summary statement of his Gospel account in Matthew chapter 9. The first was in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Now in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we read this. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Again, as I said before, this idea, this summary statement of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom is used at strategic times in the gospel of Matthew to mark off what Jesus was doing. Somebody say, well, what did Jesus do? He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Not only does Matthew say this, Luke does the same thing. Again, in two separate places, Luke makes mention of the fact that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 4, verse 43. And he he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore I am sent. And then in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass afterwards that after he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So again, what was our Lord Jesus doing? He was preaching the kingdom. Stop and think of me. What? Stop and think with me. Again, this idea, this very, this very, uh, this very thought of Jesus proclaiming the kingdom. And I'm saying to you that when he proclaimed the kingdom, I, I, I have every conviction that he did it with a sense of urgency. I have every conviction that he did it with a sense that now was the time, that there was an inbreaking of time, an inbreaking of the kingdom of God into time, I should say. And so again, the Lord Jesus Christ as the great preacher of the kingdom of God. Now, if we notice here again, uh, notice verse 15 where, where we see here, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what I want you to see and what I want you to understand here is essentially this. At this particular point in the history of the world and at this particular point in the outworking of the plan of God, we are at a pivotal moment. And it's very interesting to see throughout the scripture how oftentimes we come across these pivotal moments. 
For those of you that were with us on the, the Wednesday nights, you know that we're in that in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we are dealing with that one section where the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing his disciples for the time after the crucifixion. And he's preparing them for the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you remember what we learned this past week in John chapter 16. Jesus said these words, I have many things to say unto you now. Yeah, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot yet bear them. But when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will lead you in the whole truth. In one sense, there was, a, there was another pivot, we might say. There was that time when the Lord Jesus Christ breaks in in fullness, and now there will be that time that the church must wait for the coming of the Spirit of God to come upon the church in power. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. And it was by the coming of the Spirit of God in power that much of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was now understood. And so what we see here, as I said before, these great pivots in the outworking of the plan of God. But in this specific case here now, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, the time is fulfilled. All the prophecies that have gone before, all the promises that God has made are now coming to the fulfillment and now coming to the focus in this present moment. That's something about the nature of preaching that you must understand. The preaching is never the mere uh, saying or, or telling of, of mere past events. The preaching is bringing to bear in the present what God has promised and pressing it upon the conscience in order that in the right now you and I might respond in repentance and faith. And that's what's happening with the, with the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. The time is fulfilled. You stop and think of passages like Isaiah, like Genesis 49 verse 10 that spoke about this one that was coming. Speak about passages like Isaiah 53, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, all these great promises that were given in the Word of God. They are now being fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice again what he says here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is then this idea of the kingdom of God? Let's see if we can come back to the idea of the kingdom and, and maybe develop it a little further. As I said before, the, the kingdom of God, by way of its basic idea, is the sovereign and saving rule of God in the life of his people. Uh, there's another sense in which we can say, again, that the kingdom of God, as I said, is a present reality and it's a future reality as well. We look forward to the kingdom. To the kingdom. But note, and, and we also made mention of the fact that the preaching of the kingdom of God was, was in, in, in a sense, Jesus' uh, central theme. But notice what else we see about the kingdom. Again, getting back to the idea that the kingdom of God is a sovereign rule over all. And in one sense, the kingdom of God has always been and will always be uh, with, within the created order. We see this in Psalm 47, verse 2, where we read the following. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. You see, God has always been king. There's never a time when God wasn't. And so again, we see this idea that the scriptures have taught that God is always king. God has always sovereignly ruled over his creation. However, the Old Testament does remind us that there is a coming a time when the kingdom of God shall break in with power. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. In other words, there's this coming of the kingdom. And this is what John preached. This is what John prepared us for. Notice how the Lord Jesus Christ summarizes the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses to enter in. 
What's our Lord saying here? Is our Lord saying that before John and before the time that he came, that the kingdom of God was not in existence? Of course not. There was always a sovereign rule of God. But now it was coming in saving power. In one sense, we can say this, it was breaking into the domain of fallen humanity. Satan's power is now being overthrown. The strong man will be, will be bound. All these things, again, this dismantling of Satan's kingdom, all through the work of Jesus Christ coming in power. And so again, we see this, this idea that our Lord is able to say, the time is fulfilled. We've already t- spoken about the fact that the kingdom is both present and yet it is future. And notice again the, the characteristics that we see just from the Gospel of Mark. As I said before, we can go through the scripture in many different places and, and make emphasis to the teaching of, of the nature of the kingdom of God. But I want to say just what the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to present to you six features that Mark emphasizes here by way of the, uh, the, the kingdom of God. Number one, as I said before, we know that there is a, an, an immediacy, an urgency, an expectancy in the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. The second thing I want you to see and understand is that when our Lord is going to explain the nature of the kingdom, he is going to use parables to do that. And it might come, it may be somewhat surprising to us as why the Lord is using parables. He will use parables so that those whose hearts are right toward him will receive more information. And this may be a surprise to you, but he will also use parables so that those whose hearts are hardened toward him will have truth concealed. You might think, well, that sounds strange. Well, listen listen again to, to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Mark chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And he said unto you, it is given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That, seeing, they may see and not perceive, and hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted from their sins and should be forgiven them. So what is our Lord doing by way of these parables? He's explaining to his people, those who have responded to the king, the king is revealing. Those who are rejecting the king, those same parables conceal. You see, a parable is not, necess- is not in every instance that which anybody can understand. Sometimes, again, there is much in the parable that is meant to conceal truth. Those whose hearts are right to the Lord Jesus Christ, the parable opens. Those whose hearts are hardened, the parable closes. We also see in the, in the Gospel of Mark how that the kingdom of God is of such importance that our Lord Jesus Christ says to us, we must be willing to sacrifice everything to enter into it. We find this in Mark chapter 9, verse 47. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast in the hellfire. How important is it to, that you and I press into the kingdom? You see, it's better that we lose life and limb than to be cast out of the kingdom. We also see here is that those who enter the kingdom enter the kingdom in childlike faith. Mark chapter 10, verses 14 through 16 Again, what we have verses 14 and 15. Again, Jesus saying, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not enter therein. Notice what we're seeing about the nature of the kingdom. It's to be, it is not only prioritized in the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's to be prioritized in our lives as well. You see, we are again to, 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 to enter into the kingdom forsaking all. We're not to even let a hand or an eye keep us from entering into the kingdom of God. If it must be, again, if things must be dealt with, then deal with them. 
We must come to the kingdom of God, not with arrogance entering in with head held high, but we must come with childlike faith, a repentant and humble faith, but faith nonetheless. We see about the kingdom of God that, that the wealth of this world is a, is a great barrier to entering into the kingdom of God. Again, Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 23 through 25. Uh, verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And that reference to a rich man is a reference to those who are trusting in their riches. How hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? But lastly, the thing that we see here in the Gospel of Mark is, like I said earlier, is that there is a future aspect to the kingdom. And our Lord Jesus Christ recognized this. He said this at the Last Supper in Mark chapter 14, verse 25. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a greater manifestation of the kingdom of God. And I hope and I pray that like those who, who attended the preaching of John the Baptist, having full confidence that God will fulfill all of his promises, I hope and I pray that each and every one of us as citizens of the kingdom of God will not give up the hope and the, and the reality that Jesus Christ shall indeed fulfill all of his promises, that this kingdom shall break in with power. And so these things we see by way of the kingdom of God. Much, much more can be said concerning the kingdom of God, but we're not going to develop it anymore. One of the advantages that we have is that since the kingdom of God is referred to 15 times in the Gospel of Mark, we'll have time to develop, develop it uh, as we preach through the Gospel, and we will be developing it. As I said before, this theme is too important. We, we just can't mention the phrase and leave it undefined. We must make sure that we understand the phrase as it's being used in the scripture. So these six things that we see, again, concerning the nature of the kingdom, again, are, are, are sufficient for, for an introduction here. But that brings us, uh, what I would say, uh, to uh, a point that I want you to be aware of, because one point outside of uh, Mark that I want, one passage outside of Mark that I want to go to, very important passage of scripture, and it's found in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. And in that passage of scripture, uh, the Apostle Paul summarizes for us what the kingdom of God is all about. And he summarizes it for us in this well-known passage, Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What is Paul saying? Well, he's reminding us that the kingdom of God is not bound up in external ritual. That the kingdom of God is not bound up in external, what we might say, rites, religious rites. But the kingdom of God has an inner reality that affects the soul at its very core. That the kingdom of God is, again, to be marked by righteousness. Now, what's, what are the, what righteousness, we have to understand, again, especially as it's being used in the book of Romans. How do we understand this? Well, in one sense, in the basic sense, righteousness is conformity to a standard of right. Whenever we speak of gospel righteousness, however, we're speaking about a righteousness which is a gift that God gives to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It is, in the, in the technical sense of the word, an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is credited to you. You may look at yourself and say, I'm, I am, I'm bankrupt of any real righteousness that would give me favor in the sight of God. And in the gospel, God comes through the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ works out a righteousness for you. And that righteousness is credited to you. It's imputed to you. So that righteousness, in a sense, is the righteousness whereby you stand before a holy God. But I'm convinced that in the passage of Scripture in Romans 14, that Paul is not merely talking about imputed righteousness. In one sense, it's the most important, because without that, without the gift of righteousness, we can't stand before a holy God. 
But there is not only a righteousness that is imputed in justification, there is a righteousness that is developed in sanctification. And I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul is talking about a righteousness that includes both the justifying grace of God and the sanctifying grace of God. So that the kingdom of God, those who are marked by the, by, as being citizens within the kingdom, are marked by a righteousness that is observable. You see the imputed righteousness individuals may not see. It's what God sees in giving you a right standing in his presence. But the practical righteousness of sanctification is that which is observable. And I'm convinced that Paul is saying that when we look at the kingdom of God, it is a kingdom of righteousness. The second thing that he says is that it's peace. And this is wonderful peace. What is this peace? It's gospel peace. It's peace, again, that is built on the the gift of of imputed righteousness. In in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, I quote it so often. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's a great. It's, it's, it's one of the hallmarks of what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. This peace. You see, this peace that comes from being in a right relationship with God. This peace that comes with, me, with this awareness that God is sovereign who rules over all. This peace that comes knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign ruler of my life. This peace that comes. Amen. I have to ask you the question, do you have this peace? And if peace is a question to ask, what about this last Uh, mark of the kingdom of God joy in the Holy Ghost what a wonderful phrase joy in the Holy Ghost we've tried to explain what righteousness is both both the imputed righteousness and and the righteousness of sanctification we've tried to explain a little bit what peace is that sense of well-being that comes uh, as a result of being justified well what is this joy in the Holy Ghost what a wonderful phrase as I said before can I suggest something of an informal definition The joy in the Holy Ghost is a quote-unquote a happy holiness that springs within the soul as a result of the love of God's toward me, as a result of of the work of Christ for me, and as a result of the presence of the Spirit of God within me. This is this joy in the Holy Ghost. It permeates the whole soul. And this is the mark of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is the effect in the life. And so while there is much that has to be said by way of the kingdom of God, and we will develop it in the months to come, let us at least understand these things. Yes, the reign of God, the rule of God, a present present aspect, a future aspect of it. Oh, but by way of what it means in life, it isn't bound up in our external rituals. It is all bound up in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. I hope and I pray that you are a happy and holy citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ this morning. Well, that leads us then to the last point of our sermon here this morning. And that is the question, how do we enter this happy and holy kingdom? How do we come into this kingdom? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ tells us in no uncertain terms, doesn't he? Look here again at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Well, this is the entrance to the kingdom of God. This idea of repentance and believing the gospel. Does the the idea of the kingdom of God appeal to you? Does the idea of the kingdom of God draw something out from your soul? Does the idea of the kingdom of God, uh, is, is it presented to you as that which your soul longs for? What can I say to you? The Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you now how you may enter that kingdom. How do you enter this kingdom? Well, it's not by works of righteousness that you have done. You went to this kingdom by the brokenness of the heart and repentance, by the realization of who and what you are by way of your sin before a holy God. 
You see, again, this idea of repentance is so vitally important in the preaching of the gospel. It never goes out. It never goes out of style, we might say. And one of the sad things, again, as, I, as, as I've said so many times in the past, one of the sad things is that in our day, we don't have a sufficient emphasis on repentance. We have an emphasis on believe and accept and receive. Fair enough. But what about what our Lord Jesus Christ says here? Repent and believe the gospel. So what is this thing of repentance? Trying to define all of our terms here today, aren't we? What is this thing called repentance? Well, in one sense, repentance is a change of mind, but it's much more than that. It's a change of mind that leads to an entire change of soul. It's a change of mind that, that works thoroughly within the person. It is truly a turning to God from idols. It is that idea where the person sees themselves and like Job. Job chapter 42 verse 6. I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. You see, there's a sense in which repentance will bring you to a place that no psychologist in our day would ever bring you. A self-loathing for your sin. Oh, you see, your psychologist will move you away from that as quick as he can. But Jesus Christ will bring you to the cross and say, make sure you understand these things. Deal with these matters. But don't stay there. See the grace that is offered in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the real distinction between repentance and, 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 and out of despair. Repentance never stops just there. Repentance sees in the gospel the hope for a sinner like me. And in one sense, that's what repentance does. Repentance doesn't, it isn't saying, well, you know, I know I've sinned, but what about, what about them? What about that? That's not what repentance is. Repentance, again, sees, its abject, sees the soul in abject need. And the gospel introduces Jesus Christ at that point. So this idea of how we enter into the kingdom of God is made very clear for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. What is this thing called belief? You know what's very interesting about both repentance and, and faith? Is that these are the means whereby God unites the sinner to himself. But what's interesting is that both repentance and faith have counterfeits that are presented to us in the scripture. We have a repenting Pharaoh who never seems to repent. We have a repenting Esau, who never seems to repent. We have, a, we have those who, who make professions of faith that, that never really seem to truly believe. They believe for a while, the scripture says, and then they fall off because of difficulties. Repentance and faith, then you must understand, are not things that you and I are able to generate in the strength of our fallen nature. It's very interesting when we ask the question, how does a person enter the kingdom of God? When we go to the gospel of Mark, we find, our, we find on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, repent and believe the gospel. It's very interesting when we go to the gospel of John, we hear our Lord saying to Nicodemus, unless a man is born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, was our Lord saying that there are two ways to enter into the kingdom? Is he saying that there's the one way by way of the, the work of the Spirit and another way by, by way of the work of repentance and faith? No. What he's saying is this, is that every true act of repentance is first an act of the Spirit of God upon the soul. Every true act of faith is, a true, is, is first an act of the Spirit of God bringing the individual to believe. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not presenting two doors to the kingdom of heaven. There's one door, and it's the door of repentance and faith generated by the Spirit of God. 
And so what we see here then is we have the, the doors of the kingdom of God open to us. And you might not be able to say whether or not with certainty the Spirit of God is working within your soul, but you can say this, whether or not you, like Job, you like Job, abhor yourself and your sin, repent and sackcloth and ashes. You, like the thief on the cross, can say to the Lord Jesus Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see the bigness of the kingdom? Looking to Jesus Christ in faith. And so I set before you the, the wonder of the kingdom of God. I set before you the majesty of the preacher of the kingdom of God par excellence, which is Jesus Christ. And I press upon you his words, repent and believe the gospel. My brothers and sisters, my friends, I hope each and every one of us have repented and entered the kingdom of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray that this is the case. Well, is this message of repentance and faith only for those on the outside of the kingdom? What about those inside the kingdom? And what I would say to you is this, my brothers and sisters, repentance and faith are spiritual graces that are, that are to mark the Christian at every phase of his life. There is never a time when repentance or faith is not appropriate to, even to the Christian. And so if you or I should find ourselves thinking in ways that are dishonoring to God, we must repent of that. We must look to God and His promise to be able to that, that He promises to forgive. If you and I have, have begun to, to, to indulge in, in sinful activity that is offensive to God and, and runs counter to the purposes of the kingdom of God, then let us repent. Let us take up the, the let us take up the word of promise that God will restore us to Himself. And so, friends, you see this these twin graces, these sister graces of repentance and faith are always appropriate. And may we never attempt to preach a gospel apart from them, but may they ever be marks of those of us who have entered into the kingdom of God. For those of you who are in the kingdom of God, continue again to have the graces exercise of repentance and faith. To those of you who may be outside of the kingdom of God, oh, enter into that door. Enter into that spirit-inspired repentance and faith that you too might be that one who knows what it is to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior overall.